All right, Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Probably go ahead and have, go back to Isaiah 8, where we're going to really start. Actually, we'll go all the way back to Isaiah 7 to put it all together, but all right. But we're going to be in Isaiah 9 this morning. We're starting a little late, but we will do what we can to, uh, to finish this. We're going to try. I don't know, we may have to use the next hour too. I don't want to do that, but we'll see. All right, let me shut this door. All right. Starting in Isaiah chapter 7. Let's see what you remember from Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7 begins with what situation developing? All right, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1. It came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, went up towards Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. All right, so we have Ahaz, who is the king of where? Okay, Judah. All right, we have the king of Syria, Rezin, and we have the king of Israel, Pekah, right? Okay, Syria and Israel join forces to do what? To remove Ahaz because they want to place another king in his place. Why do they want to get rid of Ahaz? He would not join with them to go against whom? Uh, The Assyrians, okay? So they want to get rid of him because Ahaz seems to be more pro the Assyrian side and wants to rely on them, okay? So there's a great threat. Everyone in Judah is scared. Ahaz is obviously concerned. They're all very concerned. And in the middle of that situation, God sends the prophet Isaiah to Ahaz. And we find Ahaz possibly checking out the water supply to try to figure out what's going to possibly happen. Possibly demonstrating great concern. So they are great, greatly concerned. And Ahaz shows up, and or, or, Isaiah shows up, speaking to Ahaz. And who does he bring along with him? His son, and which son does he bring along with him? Shear Jashub, right? And Shear Jashub's name means? A remnant shall return. Isaiah's name means? Isaiah's name means? Nobody knows Isaiah's name? Jehovah is salvation. Okay, remember this is like absolutely critical to understanding this entire section. Okay, because the sons and Isaiah's names are all signs. Okay, all of their names are signs. So Isaiah shows up. His just by the fact that his name is Isaiah, what is he telling? What is he to demonstrate to Ahaz that salvation comes from whom? God. Uh, Shara Jashub shows up. What's, what's his name signifies to Ahaz? There will always be a remnant. Or will, no matter what happens, even if the worst thing happens, a remnant will return, a remnant will survive. Okay? So we have all of that. What is Ahaz's response to um, the, the, the word from Isaiah saying that this is not going to happen? What's his, uh, his response? Because God says, hey, it's not going to happen, and you can ask a sign. And what is Ahaz's response? Okay, it's a false spirituality. I can't ask of a sign because I don't want to tempt the Lord. But in reality, Ahaz is, is committed to what? 
We talked about this last week. His way, His will, His word, right? Remember we, we, talk, we talked about that was the ma- major theme? Okay, so Ahaz, because Ahaz has already made up his mind, he's going to rely on whom? The Assyrians, the Assyrians, okay? And that, that, that really sets up the entire situation. A, uh, Isaiah basically says, okay, you, you don't want a sign? I'm going to give a sign to the house of David, and that sign is whom? Emmanuel, God with us, which is being, is Jesus, right? But that, and a lot of people say, well, what does that have to do with Ahaz? In my, in my estimation, the best way to even understand all of this is, okay, Ahaz, you didn't want a sign? I'm going to give a sign ultimately to whom? To Judah, because I made a promise to Judah that a king will reign on the throne of David, correct? So he, he's going to make that promise, and he's going to keep that promise. Ahaz refused a sign, even though he has, he's going to ultimately get how many signs? How many signs does Ahaz ultimately get? Three. Isaiah, Sherejishab, and who's the next son in chapter 8? Shalah Hashbaz, right? Okay. All right, and his name means swift to the plunder, basically the idea that, hey, judgment's going to come, right? Judgment's going to come, all right. So Ahaz really gets three signs. The sign, in a sense, that he doesn't ultimately get is the Emmanuel sign, which I think goes ultimately to Judah, all right? Now, what does Isaiah also tell Ahaz? Hey, this is not going to happen. Israel and Syria is not going to overcome you. I'm going to take care of that. Here's a sign ultimately to Judah, Emmanuel. But what else does he tell him? That the Assyrians that you're looking to for salvation are going to do what? No, no, the Assyrians are coming in and doing what? They're going to wreak havoc upon Judah. Remember? Okay. The, the very thing he's looking to save him is the very thing that's going to come in and lay waste and destruction and all of that. Then in chapter 8, right? Because if you look in verse 17 to 25 of chapter 7, that's the coming destruction, right? From the, the Assyrians, right? That's going to come, come upon them. Then in chapter 8, what do we have in chapter 8? We have Marachal Hashbaz, right? We have his name, okay. Um, and then it, we once again have a, another sign and another reminder that those pre- people are going to be taken care of. The Syrians and uh, Israel is going to be taken care of, correct? Then uh, we start in uh, verse 5. What do we find in verse 5? Following? The Lord speaks and we have more about the Assyrians, Yes. Right? The Assyrians are going to create some problems, okay? And then, starting, uh, if we go all the way, and then God begins to tell Isaiah a number of things that he wants him to do and not to do, and don't listen to the people and all of those things, correct? And then that brings us to verse 19. In fact, look at verse 18, chapter 8, verse 18, a key verse. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs, for wonders in Israel, from the Lord of hosts, which dwells, dwelleth in Mount Zion. Isaiah and his sons were all signs. That's such a, a key thing to understanding everything here. I know I'm skipping a lot of the major difficulties, but I've s- s- covered it so many different ways. Verse 19, and when, they, and when they shall say unto you, Seek unto them 
that have familiar spirits, and unto wizards that peep and that mutter, should not a people seek unto their God for the living to the dead? All right, so Isaiah is being told the people, uh, uh, this is just a constant theme throughout. Everyone is concerned with what? Their way, their will, their word. All right? And so here, instead of listening to God, what do they start turning to? The occult, occult-like practices, right? They start looking for answers from something else. In fact, think about it. They are scared, they're concerned, and they continue to look for every solution other than God. And they start looking for information, well, from sources they are not to look to. So what, verse 20? To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Now, please note, this is the idea of darkness being introduced. And they shall pass through it, hardly bestead and hungry. It shall come to pass that when they shall be hungry, they shall fret themselves and curse their king and their God and look upward. They're looking upward in anger or rebellion. When all these bad things happen, they're going to become more angry, more upset, more rebellious. Right? They, in a sense, they're in a they're in a frightening situation. Think about this. They're going to turn to darkness, not to light for the answer, and that's only going to lead them into greater darkness. Everybody understand that? Okay. Verse 22, And they shall look unto the earth, and behold, trouble and darkness, dimness of anguish, and they shall be, what? Driven to darkness. They're in darkness, they're going to turn to darkness, and they're going to end up where? In further darkness, okay? That's the, that is a major theme in this particular section, okay? Now, all of that brings us to where? Chapter 9, okay? Chapter 9. Any questions? Chapter 7 or chapter 8? That's the quickest review I can possibly do in those two chapters. I know I skipped a million issues, all kinds of there's all kinds of difficulties in those passages, but I, I don't have time to work through all of them again, all right? There's, a, there's so many issues in chapter 7 and 8 that people can never figure out, but I've done the best I can in all the weeks we've been covering it to figure it out. So now that brings us to chapter 9. And chapter 9 has its host of problems as well. The goal here is to see if we can try to work through them, all right? So everybody ready? I'm skipping all of my notes on everything before, and we're just coming to chapter 9. All right, we're gonna, first thing we need to try to do quickly is I'm going to try to establish a very basic outline. It's not a great one, but a basic one. Uh, the, the people who have been doing the Bible study exercises, everyone has, has, has worked on their, their outlines, so everyone has kind of a different approach. I'm going to try to do one that's simple and not, it's not the best, but I think it'll at least try to give us some places to group the verses together so we have some idea of what's going on. All right, everybody ready? All right, here we go. I'm going to break it down into four major parts. Number one, I'm going to say the light revealed, Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 2. All right. The light revealed... If you look at verse 2, you'll see why I say that. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. Everybody's seen that. Please note, now this is where, okay, I don't have a lot of time to get into this, but I'll just mention this. 
in chapter 9 and a number of places, there's a number of times in Isaiah, a prophecy will be given, but it'll be spoken of in past tense. All right? That can really confuse you to no end. Why do you think in some cases it's spoken of in past tense? Like, hey, this, is, this has happened. Why do you think? Well, there's, there's, there's only a couple of answers here, right? I mean, this is not, there's only a couple, it's like a multiple choice uh, test here, right? What, what would be the first option? It already happened. So it's not a prophecy, right? What would be number two? Okay, there's there's one. Okay, there, there's one. There's one option. What would be a second option? Okay, that it's so guaranteed that it can be spoken of in past tense. Okay, all right. There's there's a possible option or number three. What's another, a third possible option? So what's number one? It already happened. Number two. It's it's absolutely guaranteed, so it can be spoken of as if it's already happened. All right. Now what would be number three? I know we're in church and we're not supposed to say this, but okay, well, that the, the whole thing makes absolutely no sense. It's just, it just makes no sense. Everything is confused and there's something wrong in the text. All right? Now, I know we're not supposed to say that, but I mean, we have to at least acknowledge, I mean, a lot of people look at it and go, what's, what's this mess? We, we can pretend, sometimes in, in Christianity, we're like, oh, no, there's not an issue. It's no big deal. That, that text, because in church, you, you don't ever address the problems with the text, okay? In, in chapter 9, we have a massive textual variant uh, and the famous prophecy that everyone quotes about a child is born and he, the everlasting father, mighty God. There's a major textual variant there found in the Septuagint. Nobody ever talks about that because we don't talk about anything that there's a problem. So um, the, those, we just have to acknowledge sometimes when you see this, you're like, well, wait a minute. That's using past tense. And then you can get into the commentaries and like, well, should it be the past tense? Should it be this? And then there's all these arguments and you can just like, I don't understand. Just realize you only have a couple of options, right? It's already happened. And so you got to look backwards to figure out when. Well, that wouldn't seem to make a lot of sense in some cases, right? Especially if he's trying to offer some kind of comfort, that would make no sense, right? Hey, don't you remember what already happened? Okay, like that doesn't help them. All right, two, it, it does make some sense that, hey, this is so guaranteed that you can speak of it as already a done deal. And then three, who knows? We don't have a clue what's going on. That's always, that's always a possibility, all right? So just keep that in mind. So what's the first part of our outline? Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. A light revealed, and that light's revealed in what verse? Verse 2 is where it ultimately is, is, is talked about, all right? Everybody got that? All right, what's uh, the ne- next part is verse 3. What happens in verse 3? We have another major issue in verse 3, but we don't have time to get into all of it. We'll just call it joy experienced, however... <laughs> Depending on your translation, you may have some major issues with verse 3. Okay? Let me read Isaiah 9.3. Thou hast multiplied the nation, and listen to the King James. You got the NIV there? Okay, listen to, the, listen to the, uh, this. King James. Thou hast multiplied the nation, and not increased the joy. All right, there's a big dispute over the word not there, okay? The, the argument goes something like this. Basically, not 
is there's two Hebrew words and they're so very similar that they think maybe there's a textual variant here because the rest of the verse doesn't seem to make any sense that they did not get joy. All right, so let me read the rest of the verse in the King James. You'll see what I mean by this. And thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in the harvest and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Well, wait a minute. If they didn't get the joy, then why are they rejoicing? So many are like, no, that doesn't make any sense. So the NIV and almost every other English translation on the earth says it. Uh, read it, Stephen. And it increased their joy, and then it compares their increased joy to having joy over the harvest and over, right? Okay. So I'm going to just say this is a joy that will be experienced, and it's going to be a great joy. And this joy is likened unto what two things? The harvest and when you basically have had a victory, a military victory. Okay, so everybody see that? Just so that you know, and we could spend a couple of hours trying to figure out why the King James says not, but just so that you understand that, okay? Uh-huh. Yeah, every other English translation does not have the word not. Something that has, some textual variation ended up in, in the King James. So that, just so that you know that. Because when you first read it, you really get confused. You're like, what is going on? All right. So what's the first part? Part of our outline? Light revealed, Isaiah 9, 1 through 2. Second, joy experience, verse 3. And then, what do you think? I'm going to read verses 4 through 7. All right. I'm just going to read verses 4 through 7. And, well, we'll have a discussion here. Okay. All right. So. Verse 4, for thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, just so that you know the Septuagint refers to that, the angel of great counsel, refers to the child as an angel, which creates lots of issues, and well, we could talk about all what the church fathers had to say. I did a, a whole podcast about it, but all right. Counselor, uh, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Okay, now what do you think we see in the rest, in verses 4 through 7, what would you call this in your outline? So let's, let's, let's review our outline so far. All right, Isaiah 9, right? So we, we see how Isaiah 8 ends. Everybody's in darkness, right? They're, they're turning to the occult, and they're going from darkness into darkness into more darkness into more darkness. Yes? Because these people are all wanting their way, their will, their word, which leads to darkness. Then all of a sudden in chapter 9, we are told that a light will be revealed, right? Or has been revealed, depending on if you go past present. You get the idea. All right, then second thing, verse 3. A joy will be experienced. And then verses 4 through 7, what do you think is going on there? What do you think is going on there, if you were to outline this? For those listening online, you can answer. I may have already seen everyone's answers. but 
What do you think? All right, well, to save time, I'll just make it, I'll, I'll try to make it simple for everyone, okay? Everybody ready? So we have the light revealed, we have the joy experienced, and I believe in four through seven, we have the reasons for the joy. What's going to bring about the joy? All right? What's going to bring about the joy? All right? Start in verse four. What's going to bring about the joy? Whatever yoke, whatever oppressor, it's going to be broken. The, oppressor, oppress, the oppression is going to be broken or going to be removed. Would that not bring joy? If you're being oppressed and the oppressor is removed, everybody should say, amen, right? Okay. What's the next thing that brings joy? After the oppression is broken, there, a bunch of stuff's going to be burned. What's going to be burned? Well, the, uh, the, the, the yoke is, bro is broken, right? Okay, then in the next verse, there's some things that are burned, correct? Garments? Yeah, all of that's, those are things pertaining to war are all going to be burnt. Why? What does that demonstrate? If all the things for war are being burnt, peace! All right, peace brings joy. The oppression is going to be removed and there's going to be peace. Everybody got that? That's going to bring about joy. Okay? So, so far, so good. And then what's the next thing? A child is born. And this child is going to be a source of joy for many. Right? A child is born. I mean, look, look how's the child described? Go through the names. Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Okay, that all sounds like something that should be joyful, yes. That's why people put it on Christmas cards. Correct? Okay. All right. What's another thing that may be a source of great joy found in those verses? Government. Government. And you say, well, that's not a sense of great joy. Well, considering all of the craziness going on in chapter 7 and 8, any government's got to be better than Syria, Israel, Ahaz, or Tilgath Pileser from Assyria. Agreed? Yeah, his government. The government of the child. Right. right this child is going to establish a government, and it's going to be better. All of that's going to bring great joy. Now, let me, uh, this is where this gets really, I, I just got to try to clean this up really quick, okay? Now, we have, we have a light revealed, right? We have this promise of joy, correct? Then, the next thing that says going to happen is the oppressor is going to be removed, right? The oppressor is going to be removed. Now, we have to ask ourselves, well, okay, what oppression is this referring to, Right? Okay, so let's think this through. If it's the, even if you remove the Syrians and Israel, right, as somehow being the oppressor to Judah, okay, well, even if you do that, that doesn't fix everything because who's going to come in on Judah? 
the Assyria. And even if you get rid of the Assyrians, Judah is going to continue to find problems and problems. And when you ultimately open up the New Testament, where, the, where do you find them? Under the foot of Rome. So does the oppression ever go away? And then when Jesus comes, does the oppression go away? So what do you do here? Let, let me just show you. You already should know. What do you think the answers are in church history? On that verse about the oppression being broken. What do you think the answers are? Some will try to look for some historical film. And go, see, well, the oppression was broken for like five minutes there. See, that fixes it. That really doesn't work. Okay, what's the second approach in church history? All right, to spiritualize it and say that this is a reference to what? Salvation and that the oppression of sin is broken and that this has nothing to do with, with getting rid of the oppression of an actual government. So it's like, that, that's one, one possible approach. And then the third, Stephen, it hasn't happened yet and that the, all the oppressors will be destroyed for the millennial kingdom where Christ will rule and reign and the lamb and the lion will lay down together. All right? So those are your options, okay? Now, what's the problem with spiritualizing it? Now, the problem with spiritualizing it is, let's, let's go through it. In Isaiah 7, is Ahaz a real king? Is Judah a real nation? Is Syria a real nation? Was the king of Syria a real person? Israel, was it a real nation? Was the person ruling it real? Okay, when it makes the promise that a virgin will conceive and bear a son, will call his name Emmanuel, was it a real virgin and a real child? Okay, if everything in chapter 7 and everything in chapter 8 and everything in chapter 9 is talking about real people, real events, and real situations, then how in the world can you come along and go, but right here, that's spiritualized. Now, that's a hermeneutical issue. Okay. Now, some people don't like that. Like, but, but I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be a part of that eschatology. It's not. Don't worry about the camp of eschatology it puts you in. Worry about being consistent in your hermeneutic. Does that make sense? All right. So there's the, there's the oppressor. After you get rid of the oppressor, what do you have next? Everything being burnt, so you have a time of peace. Yes. Okay. Well. Can anybody explain to me where that time of great peace came for Israel or Judah or anybody? When Je even when Jesus came in this first coming, did they have peace? No, they were still under the control of Rome. And then what happened at, by, by the time the control of Rome ended? No, before, before that verse, we're, we're with the burning part right now. Okay, yeah, we'll get to the government part next. Okay, so that, that's a time of peace, right? So when... There's no peace. I mean, obviously the Assyrians take out the northern kingdom completely, so they don't have any peace, right? Judah goes through all of their problems. When, then Rome takes over, yes. Okay, and then what happens as Rome is in charge? 70 AD. What happens in 70 AD? Destruction. So that's no peace, right? So no peace. So Jesus didn't bring peace in his first coming. Okay, he didn't, he, so then you have to look for either a future or you have to refer to, well, the war ends spiritually and we're no longer at war with God. That's not what that's referring, you see, you see how what we spiritualize it? Okay, then the next thing is the government that's going to be established. What do you do with that? Well, you say, oh, well, Jesus established a spiritual government and that all Christians are, well, that, again, now you're spiritualizing it all, Right? 
Well, if you spiritualize everything, why don't you spiritualize the baby itself and that's not even a real baby? And he was like, no, 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 the baby is real, but the government he establishes isn't real. He's the mighty God, that's real, but the government he establishes is not real. You see how this becomes a major issue of dealing with it. All right, so what's the outline? I know that took way longer than I wanted, but that's okay. What's the outline? Light revealed, joy experienced, reasons for the joy, and what are the reasons? The broken yoke of oppression, war is ended, a child is born, and government is established. Everybody got all of that? And then, that brings us down to what verse? Eight. Eight, and to the end of the chapter, you can, you can write this down. You ready? Judgment is coming. The rest of the chapter is about judgment. Now, the goal this morning was to start there and finish it up. Obviously, now we're out of time. We're not going to be able to do this. So, here's what we're going to do. We're going to back up a little bit and just work our way again through verse 1 down to that verse. And I'm just going to have to use the next hour uh, to work on this, okay? Because I, I want to finish up in... And Romans and propitiation, or not propitiation, uh, reprobation. But, um, well, we, we got to finish this. So I, ha- I have to finish this today because today is the beginning of the next week's uh, Bible study, which is in Luke. Okay, so, so everybody ready to think this through? All right, chapter 9, everybody have it? Everybody look at verse 1. Everybody read verse 1. Here we go. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterwards did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. Now I know in our outline we could have put a time of vexation. We could have put that down. I just put it, I grouped that with the light being revealed because that sets up the setting for where the light will be revealed. It sets up the geographical region where the light will show up. And we know in Matthew where this is, and we'll look at it in a minute. But let's just do a little work on verse 1 quickly. Since some people do some weird things with verse 1, let's work through this, okay? Here we go. First, I'm going to read it from a number of translations. All right, everybody ready? We have the New International Version back there. Let me read it. Nevertheless... There will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. All right? So, it's a contrast. There's a plate, there's an area where there has been great distress, right? There have been a land and nations and people who've been in great distress. But what is coming to that area? Honor, as the NIV says. Honor. Okay, well, obviously light. Okay, but that light is going (laughs) to... Okay, but honor is mentioned in verse 1. Okay, New Living Translation. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled. But there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. Hey, right now now there's a time of distress. There's a time of suffering. There's a time of being humbled. But in that area, 
It's going to be a time of honor or a time of glory. Right, everybody see that? Okay. Right, so far, so good. I'm going to read from another translation. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought the, uh, into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Berean Study Bible. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and, by, and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, this is just very important to remember. Remember the, the, the name of the uh, first child for Isaiah? Okay. Shira Jashub, a remnant will return. Just remember, no matter how bad the distress is, no matter how much everyone suffers, Israel, Judah, it doesn't matter. A remnant obviously remains because that remnant is present when the, the light is going to show up. That remnant has to be there for the light to show up. Judah has to remain for the light to show up. Does that make sense? That's very, very important to remember in all of this, okay? No matter how bad the, in other words, no matter how bad the distress may be, no matter how bad the vexation may be for all of these people in all of those regions, a remnant will show up. A remnant will remain. And God preserved Judah through all of that, yes? Okay, so just keep that in mind. I think that's very important to show how all of these names are connected. All right, now, I'm going to read from a, a couple of commentaries here just to get us where we can move on, okay? Because of time. Instead of trying to explain this, I'll just read this, right? Everybody ready? It is obvious, even in the English version, that the chapters are wrongly divided and that what follows forms part of the same prophetic utterance as in Isaiah 8. There's a lot of dispute. about. Remember, chapter divisions are not inspired by God. They were placed there by people, and there's sometimes a lot of times, especially in Isaiah, you're like, why did you put a chapter here? Why, why is there a chapter division? Shouldn't be a chapter division. Okay, but, all right. You can have that debate all day. That version is, however, so obscure as to be almost unintelligible and requires an entire remodeling. So they kind of remodel all of this so that we can have some kind of understanding. Surely there is no gloom to her that was afflicted. In the former time he brought shame on the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter he bringeth the honor on the way by the sea beyond Jordan, the circuit of the Gentiles. The prophet had seen in the closing verses of Isaiah 8 the extreme point of misery. That picture, as it were, dissolves and another takes its place. She that was afflicted the whole land of Israel should have no more affliction. The future should be in striking contrast with the past. The lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, the region afterwards known as the Upper and Lower Galilee, has, had been laid to waste and spoiled by Tilgath Polnizer. That same region, described by the prophet in different terms, the former representing the tribal divisions, the latter the geographical, is hereafter to be the scene of glory greater than Israel had ever known before. So, this area suffered. 
right? So it's not only giving you the tribal divisions, it's giving you the geographical region. They had suffered, and we can look for some of that suffering and some of that vexation that occurred, all right? Now, I just want to make it very clear, this is very important, because you can get lost trying to figure all of this out. Let's just make sure we understand. In this context of chapter 7 and chapter 8, who suffers? Does Israel suffer? Does Israel suffer? Yes. Who destroys them? Assyria. Does Judah suffer? From the Assyrians, right? Okay? So we have to, and just, and just there's going to be ongoing issues. So that whole area, in a sense, is, vexa- is, is re- receiving vexation and suffering and being humbled. The whole area. Okay? So that, does that make some sense? All right? Another uh, commentary. <clears throat> the nation of Judah was living in spiritual darkness because of her rebellion against their God. After God had punished and purified them, he would pardon them and send the light of his redemption. In Isaiah 8.22, Isaiah describes how God's people would behold trouble and darkness, dimness of anguish, and be driven to darkness because the people had rebelled against the Lord. God would judge and purify them. The people would be utterly defeated by their enemies. Though the people of Judah would experience great destruction and darkness, still they had hope. God did not intend to completely destroy his people. Rather, he would humble and purify them for their wicked and idolatrous ways. Isaiah compared the coming dimness of Judah with the fate to be suffered by the northern kingdom of Israel. Though their situation would be like darkness, the fate of Judah would not be such as the humbling punishment the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali had experienced. In other words, Judah would suffer, but not quite as bad as the northern kingdom. What would be the major difference between the suffering of Judah and the northern kingdom? Yeah, the northern kingdom is just gone. Right, there's a little promise. Okay, yeah. These uh, areas were two of the original 12 tribes of Israel. The tribes settled to the west and north of the Sea of Galilee. When Israel split into two kingdoms after the death of Solomon, these two areas and eight other tribes became Israel. Because the kingdom of Israel had rebelled against God, he allowed the Assyrians to take over the nation around 732 BC. The Assyrians completely destroyed the nation in 722 and exiled those who remained. Then the Assyrians brought in people from other nations. They had defeated and settled them in what was once Israel. Because these new inhabitants were not Jewish, the region became known as Galilee of the nations, or sometimes referred to as Galilee of what? The Gentiles. The reference to the way of the sea and beyond Jordan also pointed to the northern kingdom. So does that make sense of verse 1? Hey, there's, gonna, there's, there's suffering in this area. But what's, gonna, what's promised here in the midst of this suffering in this area? Look at verse 1. Honor or glory. All right? They suffered. Honor glory. And they suffered because they wanted their way, their will, their word. Remember, we, I emphasized that over and over and over and over and over last week. Okay, now, that brings us to verse 2. So now we, we understand the region, we understand the area, yes? Okay, so anybody confused? No, does that make perfect sense? 
Right, you, you, you have to say it makes perfect sense. Okay, all right. All right you have no choice, okay? Right, we're almost out of time, all right? Verse 2. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death upon them hath the light shined. Now, again, it, it refers to them as having seen it. Yes? Having seen it, past tense. Now, that word causes a lot of problems, right? Like, wait, what, what, what light have they seen? I'm, I'm so perplexed. I'm so confused. What's going on? We, we know from the New Testament that there's no question what this is referring to. Everybody know where it shows up in the New Testament? Matthew chapter 4. Go ahead and turn there. Matthew 4. This is very, 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 very important. Matthew 5, or Matthew 5, Matthew 4, verse, is it verse 16 or verse 14 through 16? Yeah, let's go, to, oh, let, me, let me turn there, I was going to have you guys read it, but, okay, Matthew 4, okay, here we go, Matthew 4, verse 14, that it might, oh, well, in fact, let's go back to verse 12, now when Jesus had heard that John was cast in the prison, he departed into... Galilee, okay, that's important, right? Because that goes back to Isaiah 9, correct? And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast and the borders of Zebulon, and then King James puts it, Zebulon and Naphtalim, right? I, I, I bet you the NIV, has it have it, how, how does it have them described? Uh, there you go, Zebulun and Naphtali, which goes right back to Isaiah 9, yes? Okay. And he goes there that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying the land of Zebulun, reading from the King James, and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee, of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. And then how does this light appear? It appears in Jesus, but specifically in what way? What does he do in verse 17? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Listen, now I just, I think it's fascinating. The whole section, they wanted their way, their will, their word. The light shows up and says what? His word telling them to turn from their way and their will. Isn't that kind of fascinating? Right? I think that everybody should go, ooh, that's really good, because I think that's really good right there, okay? Right? That, everyone that should be impressed, because that's a very important point right there. Right? Everybody see that? All right, so, um, now I'm going to <clears throat> go back. I'm going to do a little reading here on verse 2. The people that walked in darkness, those who to whom Isaiah was speaking, the rebellious inhabitants of Judah... Though at this point they were doing relatively well, they were living in spiritual darkness, separated from God because of their failure to honor and serve him. The days were coming when the Babylonians would completely destroy Jerusalem and the temple. Anybody know when the Babylonian destruction occurs? Five, like 587, 586. Now this is very important. Now why is this so important? Remember back in Isaiah 9? We got about the oppressor being removed and all the things of war. Well, wait, 
So clearly that doesn't apply to Israel because why? The Assyrians wiped them out. Well, if you say Judah, well, the Assyrians are getting ready to come upon them. After the Assyrians, who's coming upon them? The Babylonians, and they'll be in captivity for how long? 70 years. After they come out of Babylonian captivity, you now you're, you don't have, a, you have a, a, a relatively short amount of time, and where are they going to find themselves? Under the control of? So, in other words, any, 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 anywhere where you try to find some fulfillment of some of these prophecies, they fall apart in a literal way. Does that make sense? I cannot stress that enough. That's why the timeline is so important. That's why the timeline, you've got to know the timeline. I, I, I've only got a couple of minutes. I've, I've got a, if, you, if you heard the sermon review I did yesterday, because we've been listening to sermons on Isaiah 9, the one... I mean, it's so frustrating. It's, a, it's, a, it's basically a megachurch with you know, multiple locations. He's got who knows how many thousands of people listening to him. And I'm li- we're, we're listening to his sermon on Isaiah 9, and I'm just like, I don't understand. Okay, first of all, he refers to Ahaz as the king of Israel. He's not the king of Israel. It's the divided kingdom. Secondly, he, not only does he say he's the king of uh, Israel, he then says that this prophecy that we're reading about happens in like 500-something. Well, it can't happen in 500-something because Ahaz dies in 700-something. So, like, he's got the wrong time. He's got the it's, it's like he makes every known mistake you can make. And I'm like, how are you the pastor of a mega church? You know why? Because nobody in the pews cares. Nobody cares if you get the time right, the name's right. They don't care. Just give me, throw out a little verse about Jesus for Christmas and then everyone's happy to go home and get home by noon so they can get to the buffet. Nobody cares. But that, that's, that's unacceptable mistakes. I mean, how in the world can you be preaching in Isaiah 9? Did he not read chapter 7? Does not chapter 7 clearly identify who the king of Israel is? Doesn't that clearly identify who the king of Judah is? In this whole prophecy, fall in the context of Ahaz scared of the king of Israel, so therefore he's turning to the Assyrians? I mean, how do you miss this? This is like, you know, junior high Sunday school classroom stuff. But he's preaching from a pulpit in a mega church. I want to say mega, mega in the sense compared to us, not mega compared to Joel Olstein, but you know what I'm saying, a large church with multiple campuses. I'm like, how does that happen? Because nobody in the, nobody, nobody the pew could care, they could care less. They could care less. No, no, everyone will have no problem this Christmas going to a little church where they read little Isaiah 9, 6, and everybody's like, oh, how beautiful. They don't have a clue of the context, they don't have a clue of anything going on, and nobody cares. And, 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 I, and I get irritated when I hear people in the church say, well, they were never taught. Get, stop with the excuses. You own a Bible, right? So whose responsibility is it to know it? Yours. So when people sit in churches and do that, it's their fault. It's their, they allow that to happen. Because that's it's just, I can't even... I, to the, 
to, the, to this minute, I'm still so frustrated by why I, what I heard because I'm like, okay, we'll just review a sermon. I, I just picked one from the Edify Christian Podcast app. I'm like, oh, here we go. And I'm like, what in the world? It was so messed up. He got so much wrong and it's like just basic stuff. Now, I agree. Is it difficult to work through all of this? We got all kinds of names and places. Yes, but it's our job to figure it out. It's, here's what's ironic. We're listening to a sermon on Isaiah 9. And Isaiah 9 is referring to a people who are literally in spiritual darkness. There's such spiritual darkness, they're turning to the occult for answers, right? All of them are refusing God. They're in complete darkness. And a pastor preaching on a, 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 a text about people in spiritual darkness basically adds darkness to people's understanding of the very text. That's a little ironic, is it not? Or it's very telling that the, the concept of spiritual darkness is very much alive and well today. The, the text of Scripture is supposed to bring light. If the pastor adds darkness to the text, that it, the job of the pastor is to help you understand the text as much as possible. Right? So, yeah, it just the whole thing just frustrates me. Okay, but, so, when does the Babylonian captivity happen? 587, 586. And most of the people who were left uh, to Babylon Babylon as exiles. However, God's plan was not to utterly destroy, but to restore and purify a remnant in the land. In the 6th century BC, God worked through leaders like Ezra and Nehemiah, bring light to his people. And at that time, the darkness uh, suffered by the people of Judah would be swept away by a great light as God allowed them to return to Jerusalem. All right, and rebuild the wall. And we know, we know. And there's a little bit of, some people think that fulfills a lot of this, yes? Oh, see, there was light there. That, wait, there was, there was, the oppression was broken. And a lot of people think that that fixes all of it. The only problem is it doesn't last. It's very temporary. Okay, so just know that some people would point to the Babylonian, return from the Babylonian captivity as possibly maybe trying to fulfill some of this, but it doesn't work great, all right? Isaiah's prophecy was speaking of another greater fulfillment. In the gospel, Matthew quoted from Isaiah 9 to describe how Jesus fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy. Matthew told how Jesus left Judea, went to Galilee to begin his public ministry, and in doing doing so, he brought light of his witness. Okay, does that make sense? All right, now, let's just do this quickly because we're out of time. Okay, in Isaiah 7, right? Isaiah 7, quickly look. Where is the prophecy about Jesus specifically in Isaiah 7? Everybody should know where they are. Everybody should have these memorized. 14, okay? That, and that prophecy deals with his what? His incarnation, okay? Is there a prophecy of Jesus in chapter 8? And it may know of one in chapter 8. Okay, what does it say in verse 14? 
Okay? All right? Now, <clears throat> we'll, 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 I, I don't want to say too much about that one right now because I don't want to get back into all some of the complications. Okay? So, let's do this. Let's do this. Isaiah 7, we have the incarnation. Right? Now, I'm not, I'm not going to, I don't want to, I'm going to skip it for now. Chapter 8. Chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, we have what? Or 6 and 7, I should say. We have, we have, we have the incarnation, and then 6 and 7, we have, oh, actually, before we get to 6 and 7, think about this, all right? So, Isaiah 7, the incarnation. Isaiah 9, 1 through 3, about the light coming, goes to Matthew 4, and that speaks of his earthly ministry, right? Incarnation, earthly ministry. The 9, 6 through 7, deals with what? Well, it deals with the character of the child and the character that would be demonstrated in his earthly ministry and ultimately demonstrated throughout, all right? So in other words, a, a bunch of different aspects of his ministry and character are all outlined in the section. Does that make sense? I could break it down a little bit more, but uh, because of time, I don't want to go too much into this. All right? Is that, is that helpful? All right, so let's go through the, let's just review the outline quickly, all right? Isaiah 9. Verses 1 through 2. Isaiah 9, 1 through 2. A light, is a light is revealed. And that light is coming to a specific region and in a sense to a specific people who are in darkness to Galilee, right? And again, just interesting, it would go to Galilee, which in some ways, because, because of how they, the Assyrians put people there who were not Jewish, you could in some ways go, that could be almost considered an offense to the Jews, Right? Like, why are you going to go to Galilee? Right? Why wouldn't you come to a more pure Jewish area? But we, we could talk. That demonstrates how they've been humbled. Okay? But, so he goes to Galilee. That's where the light's going to shine. Okay. What's the next part? Joy. There's a promise of a joy, a joy experienced. There's going to be a joy that they're going to experience. And, what's the, and then the next part of the outline is the reasons for the joy. And what are the reasons? Oppression broken. Peace a child is born, and a government, all right? And then we have judgment is coming at the end, uh, for the end of the chapter. All right, we'll have to stop there. I know we didn't get very far, but that's okay. We'll use the entire next hour to finish this chapter up, all right? Any questions? Everybody understand? Everybody got a good understanding of chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9? I could give you a test right now and you'd all pass? I hope so. Okay, I hope so. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you. Lord, it is sad and very frustrating that at this time of year, when verses from these chapters are quoted, that it demonstrates in many cases that even those preaching it don't understand the chapters. And what's really, really sad is that many sitting in the pew either will say amen to sermons that clearly indicate that they don't understand the chapter or the people in the pew will quote these verses or put them on Christmas cards, but ask any questions about the chapters themselves would demonstrate a complete lack of understanding. We talk about how great this time of year is, but I think we think it's great because of what we get, not great because of what you sent. And we need to be forgiven for that grave sin. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And guys, people said...